we have an unfunded mandate. The state requires children of abuse and neglect and abandonment to have a guardian ad litem, a pro bono attorney, and a volunteer interpreter. They don't fully fund that. Right. So we have this burden to recruit a huge amount of people to do the actual work. Welcome to Idaho Speakeasy. I'm Mike Turner, and I'm on a mission to uncover and share the stories of Idaho's finest entrepreneurs, community leaders, local icons, and those who are impacting our community. Today in the Speakeasy, we have Jamie Hansen, the Executive Director of Family Advocates. Jamie is here to tell us more about Family Advocates. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, um, you know, I hadn't heard about Family Advocates until my wife was telling me about it. Um, and so if I didn't know, I'm sure others didn't know. So what just quickly, how do you kind of describe it uh, when you meet pe- for people are learning about it for the first time? Sure. So Family Advocates is uh, 40 years old this year. We were started in 1978 by two foster families, the Hogans and the Murphys. They saw a great need to keep children out of the foster care system, that they were being, the trauma was being perpetuated by the system. So if you take away anything about Family Advocates, know this six-word story. Safe kids, strong families, and brave volunteers. Okay. All right. So, wow. So is, and is Family Advocates a, a local organization, or is it more places than just here? Family Advocates is a Boise-located nonprofit, okay. but our area of service is fairly large. So in our court-appointed special advocates, or CASA program, we cover the 4th Judicial District. In layman's terms, that is Valley, Boise, Ada, and Elmore County. So okay. a pretty large population of Idaho is covered by our CASA program by Family Advocates. Okay, so you talked about um, court-appointed special advocates. What's What does that mean? Yeah. We harness the power of volunteers here in the community. We support and train them to be representative of children's best interests in the court of law. So that means when a child has been taken out of their home due to imminent danger, so a child of abuse, neglect, or abandonment comes into custody, our volunteer guardian ad litem independently investigates that child abuse case and then partners with a pro bono attorney to represent the child's best interest in court. Permanent placement, medical advocacy, educational advocacy, it runs the gamut. So those folks are extremely important. Okay, and so, because we've all heard, and some people have first-time experience of not so great foster situation, foster care situations. Um, is that kind of, you know, what was, what was how did it get started? Like, where, where was this need, you know, or what was not being provided and, I guess what what kind of led to the reason why this organization exists, you know, uh, because isn't there normally these kinds of things happening in the this foster care environment? Yeah, Family Advocates was actually originally founded on prevention. We okay. wanted to keep children again out of the foster care system. Okay. So we started with prevention-based programming, and we continue it today. It's okay. called Family Strengthening, and we're in Boise, Caldwell, and Mountain Home. Okay. And what that is is how do we build a safe, strong, stable, and healthy family unit so that children are never removed from the home due to abuse? Okay. Abuse never happens. So ah. CASA is reactive. CASA is, oh my gosh, this terrible thing happened to these children or this child in this family. They're now a ward of the state. So they have a case manager through the Department of Health and Welfare. Each of the parents um, or guardians involved in the case has a public defender. The state is a part of some of these cases. And then where do we bring the child's voice in there? And to just demonstrate how important this is, in 1977, when this all began, actually in King County, Seattle, 
um, it spread across the nation really quickly. And family advocates, along with several local attorneys and lobbyists, created CASA in Idaho in 1983. We received our first funding from the state in 1986. In 1989, we had 15 cases of abuse and neglect in the 4th Judicial District. Last year, we had 710 children in out-of-home placement, just in our district alone. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> that, that was a huge number. I'm still getting my head around that. So um, what is the goal when you, obviously you're trying to help these kids, right? So you know, that was the focus is on them. Um, when this happens, um, you, you mentioned that it, there's kind of this, they had this, uh, family advocates had initial mission, you know, how we understand that better. So, because when you guys come, how do you guys get involved, even hear about it? And then what's kind of your first steps? Specifically in CASA? Yes. We are court appointed. So when a child is deemed in imminent danger, a police officer removes the child or the children from the home. They're placed in out-of-home placement, which could be a foster home um, right. with foster parents. Yeah. It could be an institution. It could be even a hotel with the case manager from Department of Health and Welfare if no home is available. The shelter care hearing, which is within the first 48 hours of this child protection case, is where we are appointed. We have about... 30 days to find a volunteer guardian ad litem, a pro bono attorney, and if needed, a volunteer interpreter to serve this child. Okay. And so, and then, um, do you help with the transition into the foster, if that foster care, if that's needed, how does that work? So the foster families are pretty excellent. Okay. Um, the children have, as you can imagine, some pretty traumatic situations. Right. When we talk about what child abuse, abandonment, uh, neglect looks like in Idaho, a lot of folks think of broken bones. And while that certainly is something that is a part of our children's reality, we also have a large amount of children in the neglect category. So neglect can be a lot of things, as you can imagine. The definition is pretty broad. But when I try to describe this to people, the average neglect case is dirty home, and I'm using that in air quotes because my dirty home, I'm a little OCD, uh -huh. is means that one thing is out of place. <laughs> These dirty homes are, you walk in, the child is crawling around on the floor, and you're not sure if it's linoleum, carpet, tile, underneath the trash and fecal matter. Yeah. And this is what children are putting in their mouths, this is what they're crawling around in. We oftentimes see diapers fused to the baby's skin. These situations are fairly dire. Yeah. So when these children come into care, it is not lightly. And it's only a police officer that can really remove these kids. Hmm. And because I'm a numbers person, I have to tell you, that 710 number was a lot, right? Yeah. Well, statewide, in 1.6 million people in Idaho, we had almost 30,000 phone calls of abuse and neglect last year to the Department of Health and Welfare. And out of that 30,000, about 3,200 ch children were in out-of-home placement. So that's a about 10% or less um, come into care out of those referrals. So this is, as a reminder, Idaho's a mandatory reporting state. So if you see something, say something. Okay. So you mentioned when you described the coin-appointed advocates um, that they're many of them are volunteers? 100% of them are. Yeah, wow. The statute in Idaho, the Child Protection Act, which is uh, Section 16, 16, for any attorneys out there listening, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, um, it outlines the roles and responsibilities of a guardian ad litem. And it specifically states a guardian ad litem is a volunteer from the community. Mm -hmm. This was intentional in 1977 when CASA was created in Seattle because 
the layman with proper training, background checked, check and support can actually be a translator for the court. So they have to translate all the legalese, they need to translate all the social workies, and they need to think about what is the best interest of this child, which again is different than expressed interest. As you can imagine, all of these children just wanna go home, even if home's not safe. Okay. So best interest is what is permanent placement and safety look like? I imagine there's often situations where um, uh, could be the the mom is trying to help her kids go someplace safe, you know, or whatever it might be. If there's some abuse situation, um, so that must be tricky too, because then there's you know diff- different parents, right, mm-hmm. and all wanting to control, you know, or keep. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so do you guys? How do you guys get involved with that kind of stuff? Do you have, I guess, uh, a, a a place for people who do call in or have some concerns about how they can get help? Our family strengthening program is there for folks who may have questions about creating a stable family unit. Okay. Uh, but it sounds like what you're describing, correct me if I'm wrong, is family law, which okay. is different than child protection. Okay. So in family law, that's where you're going to have that disputed custody issue. That's where um, you may see individuals using their children as collateral in, in divorce or okay. other situations. While that's something that happens in child protection, uh, it's not our primary focus. Okay. Well, let's talk about this family strengthening thing. What's that all about? Well, it's a very unpopular concept. Okay. I'm getting a little political, excuse me. Okay. But prevention is less funded in Idaho than reaction. Hmm. So right now, the state funds about 17% of our budget, and that's primarily from uh, the the Supreme Court as a pass-through of the Idaho legislature. And that's all for our CASA program. Okay. We have to fundraise the rest of it. And 100% of our family strengthening program is from private foundations, individual donors, and a very small percentage from the Victims of Crime Act, which is a federal mandate. Okay. And what what are you doing? With, how does that work? How does your, fit, your family strengthening, I mean, what is what are your volunteers working on? We like to be as confusing as possible. Okay. So family strengthening is at family advocates. We can't okay. say family enough, apparently. Right. right. <laughs> so family strengthening works with individuals. It's a voluntary program. Uh, we have an intake procedure where folks sign up. They explain what barriers to success they may be experiencing. For some individuals, maybe that's an offender history. Um, maybe they've already had their kids taken away. Maybe they're struggling with mental health and addiction issues. Um, perhaps they're homeless or struggling with underemployment or unemployment. Um, it's just a variety of different barriers. And what they they come to us with is, you know, I don't know how to be the best parent that I think I can be. Do you have any advice? And this is a 20-week curriculum that we just have ongoing year-round. And folks jump in. We're talking about things like financial literacy. We're talking about self-care. Uh, this week we talked about PTSD, and we partnered with Lifeways, another nonprofit. We center it around food because nobody shows up without food, right? Okay, right. To anything. Good call. You know right. this. The right. Impact Club always has food. <laughs> right. And, well, and wine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you got them, yeah. <laughs> um, but we also encourage folks to attend, and we offset it with some household items. So do you need diapers? Do you need wipes? Do you need clothing for your kids? Do you need 
a pay less gift card um, so you can get shoes? Do you need backpack or school supplies for your kiddos? What do you need to be successful that can kind of offset your financial constraints? So every time the, the family shows up for programming, they get an opportunity to walk away with full belly um, provided by Create Common Good, one of the Impact Club's recipients, mm-hmm. as well as a couple of items, again, to save them a little bit of money. Okay. Wow, that's cool. But it sounds like uh, one of your biggest challenges is maybe funding with that program. I'm sure you all are tired of hearing that. Nonprofits are constantly (laughs) talking about how we need money, how we need money. Hey, that's why we talk about it. (laughs) But that's why we talk about it because, you know, a lot of people don't even know what people, you know, what organizations are working on and what they're struggling with and a lot of the good work they're doing. Um, And then we always feel like, well, if more people just knew your story, maybe it would be a little bit easier. Right? Well, and thanks for highlighting that. <laughs> and the Family Advocates actually has kind of a unique situation. Okay. We need people, volunteers, as much as we need money. Wow. And we okay. need it to keep up with one another. So mm. we have, um, this community is extremely generous. As you know, you are one of the extremely generous people in our community, both of our time and our, and our efforts and energy and knowledge and expertise, but also of our dollars. So what we see is we have an unfunded mandate in CASA. The state requires children of abuse and neglect and abandonment to have a guardian ad litem, a pro bono attorney, and a volunteer interpreter. They don't, they don't fully fund that. Right. So we have this burden to recruit a huge amount of people to do the actual work. Mm. And as you would imagine, this is not easy volunteering. This no. is not warm, fuzzy, feel good, you know, read to a kid as, as important as that is you know, drop-in situations. These are year-long commitments or longer if the parental rights are being involuntarily terminated. Right. And so let's talk about the volunteers for a second. So does someone to who is interested in maybe participating in volunteering, is, are you looking for people with certain backgrounds or... Nope, we take them all. We've got tow truck drivers and chemists and physicists and retired teachers and nurses and stay-at-home moms and dads and retired military, um, just everybody in between. We have about 40 hours of pre-service training before you can take a case. Okay. And what does it look like when you take a case? Like, So if I'm a retired uh, nurse and I'm interested in getting involved, so what is, what is this initial you know, uh, training like, and then what, what might it look like an example of a case, I guess, that they might be involved with. So I always encourage people just come to a volunteer orientation, ask your questions before you make any decisions. The volunteer orientation describes hundreds of different ways you can contribute your time and talents to these children and families. But what we're looking for is people that are over 21 that can pass um, successfully a federal background check, as you can imagine, and have their own transportation. What it looks like is you do 40 hours of pre-service training. That means there's some in-class time. There's discussions, online activities. Um, There is courtroom shadowing. So you're actually going in and watching a case in the courtroom and how that procedure looks. And then you're practicing report writing. And that's actually the most difficult part because you have to remove all bias from your report. Hmm. You have to report just the facts, the observations, and the information you've been provided through your investigation. So let's say you successfully complete your pre-service training. Okay. You also have 12 hours of continuing education every single year. So there are some pretty strict national standards that we have to uphold. So then you take a case. Let's say there's one child, a baby, about a, you know, a six-month-old. 
And every case is very unique. You may have one kid, you may have 10, you okay. may have five different foster homes, you may have one. Okay. So our staff try and match you with the case that works with your lifestyle. So if you have a full-time job mm -hmm. and a family at home, you're probably not going to want the case that has 10 kids in five different foster homes. That's going to be very time-consuming. Sure. So we say you're going to spend about 10 to 15 hours a month on your investigation, your report writing, and your in-courtroom time. And court varies. Sometimes in some counties, you're going to court every single month. And those could last about a half an hour. Mm -hmm. In Ada County, you're probably going maybe three to six months. Where, depending on where you're at and the point of the case. You're meeting with the child once a month, so you're putting eyes on a kid, and then you're... You're going to wherever they're, they're staying, whether it's at home or at the foster care or... None of our children are in their homes. Okay, because they they've in, been removed. Yeah. Yes, okay. So they're probably in foster care, but mm -hmm. they may also be in an institution. Okay. Uh, but you're putting eyes on the kiddo once a month, and yeah. then you are calling, emailing, talking to the adults in that kid's life. Is that part of what you call the investigation process? Okay. It is. It's okay. an independent investigation. Uh, so the Department of Health and Welfare is doing a, an investigation, and they provide information to the prosecution. Mm -hmm. uh, the public defenders are also doing an independent investigation. So each party collects information and provides it to the judge in order to make a decision in the, in the child protection hearing. Okay. So when you're talking to the adults in the kid's life, you're talking to teachers, counselors, doctors, next-door neighbors, auntie, grandma in Florida, all of the adults that may be a potential placement or have information on a potential placement for this kid. Okay. Wow. All right. Hold and on a second. Wait, Do wait. I get to ask questions? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I just, it was, I'm just trying to get up to speed because, yeah, this is a, a world that, you know, I, in one way I'm like, gosh, I'm glad I, I mean, that I haven't been exposed to this in the sense of because this is a very tough situation. Yeah. But obviously... I'm glad I have learned because there it's I'm surprised to see how large of an issue it is and and it's you know if there's thousands what'd you say 30,000 what was it 30,000 phone calls or referrals of abuse and 3200 kids in care it's, it's just in Idaho yeah. In, in the last year. Yeah. So that is a, that's a big number. Yeah. Uh, what I gosh. tell people is these are the kids that are sitting next to your children or your grandchildren in class. These are the kids that are playing on their bikes down the street from you. And these are the kids that you're going to have to hire one day. Right. So if we invest in prevention and we help these children have a normal, healthy childhood now, aren't we going to be stronger as a state later? I'm sold. So, so <laughs> what's the... Uh, so your prevention, let's kind of this re revisit that really quickly again. So, sure. um, so how are maybe your volunteers participating in the kind of prevention side? Yeah. Sometimes you're coming in and you're rocking babies. So okay. when the parents show up for their class or their discussion groups, mm -hmm. uh, the kids come with them. So we may have three children under the age of one. We may have four children under the age of five. We have a lot of three-year-olds right now. Okay. And we may have a couple of older kids. And what we do is create parallel programming for the youth that the adults are learning. Okay. So again, this week they talked about PTSD and how trauma can affect your life in the adult class. Well, the children were working on what does emotions look like and how do we play well together? So maybe they're drawing a face of what it looks like to be happy, drawing a face of what it looks like to be sad, talking about sharing, talking about how you participate well with your peers in, of course, an age-appropriate way. So our volunteers provide that curriculum and that engagement, and it's also an opportunity for the kiddos to create another positive adult 
relationship in their life. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that kids say without, without their parents around. Right. And so <laughs> it sounds like you've personally experienced yeah, that. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, and then how did families who are, how did, how did families even hear about this, 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 getting this help? I mean, how do they, or how are they hearing about this program? Are they, are you coming in contact with them? Is this something that you're just trying to get the word out? How does this, how does that part work? Yeah. So they don't teach a nonprofit marketing class right. uh, that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> so we're really rely on referral channels, Department okay. of Health and Welfare, WIC, sure. other nonprofit partners. But what we find is word of mouth is everything. So a parent shows up and they're like, oh, this isn't that bad. It's not scary. It's kind of cool. I get food. My kid is really engaged and they enjoy it. Uh, and then they tell other people. Right. Okay. So... Jamie, how did you get involved? You know, you're the executive director. How, what's your backstory like? Or how did you get involved with this in the first place? Oh, my gosh. I am a nonprofit nerd. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> so okay. I started in uh, the community benefit organizational sector 20 years ago. And I, um, my first job paid position was sitting at the top of the slide at the YMCA uh, saying, Go. Go okay. for a summer. <laughs> and I was hooked naturally after that. Um, I've moved around quite a bit, but I have been in Idaho off and on since 1997. I have a uh, undergraduate degree in psychological sciences with an emphasis in race, class, and gender. And my master's degree is in public administration, again, with an emphasis in gender and nonprofit management. I received both my degrees from Boise State, so I feel like that makes me an Idahoan. Right? right? Yes. Okay. I think you passed the test. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't like to tell people where I'm originally from, so I say I moved here from Colorado. <laughs> but okay. I think you can imagine which state I actually okay. was born sure. in. Okay, sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, I really like this sector. I joke that my dad was really disappointed when I decided to get my master's in public administration instead of business. He's an entrepreneur. Hmm. He loves starting businesses, rehabbing businesses, buying, selling them. Uh, and I grew up in his shops, doing everything from cleaning to selling. And I think that nonprofit is the hardest job and the most rewarding. I like to tell people, it's not sales, but I'm telling you what your legacy could be. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you what your future might look like even after you're gone. And mm -hmm. that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. It is powerful. I think... Uh you know, um, a lot of people haven't, um, I mean, it, we'll take the entrepreneur angle. If, um, one, one of the things we've tried to do with impact club is, is, is the same thing can happen with like your entrepreneur. Like if you give an entrepreneur like a hundred dollars, it's, you feel like, well, am I really even moving the needle at all? It's hard. And so I think a lot of people, they feel that way. And so therefore they don't give, right. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, it's not going to do anything. And of course, it will if enough people do, right? And 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 so I think there's that kind of that thing that we've, people have fallen into that. Well, I do more if I have a little bit have more money or if I have more time, and, and it's easy to fall in that trap. Life is busy. You got families craziness going on. You got all, you got work craziness. Um, but when you but if you do find yourself in that situation where you can be in that situation where you can see the work that you, you're likely not getting paid for um, in like a nonprofit situation or something you're volunteering for um, and you see how rewarding it is, it's just really an eye-opener. 
And so I always, I'm trying to get my kids exposed to that. So at least mm-hmm. they can hopefully have that moment mm-hmm. when they're like, like, holy cow, that I can feel, I can feel, they can see the need and I can feel how I can impact it. And let's do more of that. Yeah. Do you have any stories from your childhood where you remember moments of philanthropy or maybe just generous spirit? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, I don't know if I can point to one specific moment. Um, but what I found is, you know, with, at least with in my, in my, from my background, I remember a lot of trying in my school, just really looking out for other people who mm-hmm. are kind of getting pushed around, you know, or maybe even abused a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I didn't quite understand the, uh, they just feel like they, they were like these these kids that, um, that were just being overlooked, and it was a problem that was kind of being overlooked and shoveled aside. And I think that was just part of the natural course of the system. Mm-hmm. And of course, in kids, you know, they're just not really even looking at that or paying attention to that. So uh, that always impacted me a lot. And then I I know with like things like with like Impact Club, they're uh, part of the reason why we were trying to even come up with that idea was just trying to get more people aware of what's happening around them mm-hmm. and to share the stories of what's happening. So I think, you know, my biggest wake-up call of recent years was seeing that how even one person can make a big difference and that how I one person can influence other, inspire other people. And so even if you have a limited budget or limited time, you can take that and... Um, you can still inspire so many others who are maybe also have limited budget and limited time, but collectively sure. you can make an impact. So, uh, I really like that concept and I, cause I've seen it at work. And so it inspired me to kind of do more of that. Uh, even when I feel like I'm at my limit I'm like, Oh, well I can always squeeze in something. And therefore, uh, and then when I do, I'm always like, Oh, it's so rewarding. And let's, let's find a way to do it again. I really applaud parents sorry to go back to this because crowdfunding is a wonderful way to um, feel like you're creating a larger ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And I'll come back to that too. But but with children, um, what I'm seeing is a lot of parents want to instill that philanthropic, that volunteerism, that empathy mm-hmm. with their children. And they see opportunities with nonprofit. But I really challenge folks to see the day-to-day, right? Do, do your mm-hmm. children see you drop a few coins in a busker's guitar case? Do they see you offer somebody uh, roadside assistance if their car is broken down? Do they see you wave at somebody asking for money mm-hmm. um, or smile or, you know, tell people to have a good day? Like all of these behaviors really reinforce with children um, maybe larger things they can do later mm-hmm. in life. That's the only reason why I ask. Yeah. But I agree. Crowdfunding is almost this um, fuels that immediate reward mm-hmm. that we want to see. Um, knowing my $100 is going to help a nonprofit, but $20,000, what what could that mean for this organization? Right. And that's an immediate, almost sensory reward versus volunteerism, especially in our job. You're planting the seed, hopefully, for a future of success. Yeah. But you may never see it. Right. Well, but, you know, just having the opportunity to, to make a difference in someone else's life or help out somebody who is in that, to at least have somebody that be, be there for someone because when they're in that tricky situation, um, it seems like, you know, a very tough yet a rewarding situation. Did you grow up here? 
Oh, I'm from Alaska. You're from Alaska? Yes. Oh, that's my dream state. I've always wanted to go there. <laughs> yeah, no, my folks moved up there in the 60s for good <gasps> teaching jobs. Yeah. Oh, you do come from a philanthropic background then. Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, definitely great parents. So. Yeah. Teachers um, have to fundraise for their own lives, so yeah. I imagine <laughs> they're pretty good at that. That's amazing. All right. Well, as we wrap it up, I want to just uh, cover a few things. So um, if somebody is interested in learning more about your organization, where might they go to find out more? Sure. So our website, of course, is the most convenient place. It's familyadvocates.org. Uh, we also have a Facebook page that's really active. So feel free to like us, share our posts. Of mm. course, if you um, are really interested in getting engaged with our mission, we hold monthly story tours. Our next one is actually May 23rd. It's from 12 to 1 p.m. We provide lunch. Okay. Nothing fancy here, folks, just some sandwiches and chips. Um, so again, May 23rd at our office at noon, you can RSVP through our website or by emailing Nick at familyadvocates.org. Awesome. And all right. Well, it's been awesome having you here, Jamie. Thank you. And, um, I look forward to, uh, you know, having more conversations with you. It's at family advocates. Seems like it's an amazing organization that fueled by how big is it? How many volunteers do you have? Oh my goodness. We have over 200 volunteers across wow. the organization. Yeah. Um, and, and still always in need. It sounds like Desperately. it's quite the, quite the mission you guys have. And, um, so I applaud your efforts and I appreciate your time today and hopefully we'll help continue to spread uh, the story of family advocates. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Tune in every Thursday between three and four. I'm Mike Turner. You've listening to Idaho speak, speak easy. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.